0: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. And with Burrow, you always get fast free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Oh, Lord have mercy. Look at the flaming size of this episode. Zach, what are you trying to do to me? You're trying to kill me here? Well, history friend, this is the biggest episode we've ever, ever made. And it comes to you because, well, first and foremost, I set myself the task of doing the Versailles Anniversary Project and covering what these people were covering a century ago. And let's just say they didn't make it easy for us. They didn't think in 100 years into the future that some crazy guy would be speaking to himself about the whole thing and that you guys would be just as crazy as me, if not more so, and listen along. In all seriousness though, of course, this podcast is a listener-supported podcast and it's my job to do When Diplomacy Fails, which explains why I'm able to deliver large, junky episodes like these to you guys on a regular basis. Normally, for those of you that might be listening for the first time, we don't release several episodes a week and we do not release episodes that are more than an hour long, as a rule. As a rule though as well, I'm trying to reduce the actual number of episodes and I figured it would be a better idea to release one large episode than several, seriously, still quite large episodes. If you'll forgive me for that crime of releasing an enormous episode, because I'm not Dan Carlin, then great. And if you'd like still more content, I know it's a bit of a hard sell at the moment, but if you would like different content that is not Versailles-related, head on over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails, and for $5 a month, you could be chowing down on something as interesting as the Suez Crisis, or perhaps Jan Sobieski, Poland's last really good king, and his biography. What about the Hungarian Revolution of 1956? What about the de-Stalinisation process, which followed after Stalin died in 1953? All that, and so much more to come into the future. Also, did you know it's our birthday on the 18th of May, when Diplomacy Fails is 7 years old, and to celebrate we're hosting a Q&A. But this episode is going to be so much more than a Q&A because we have some really big news to drop on you guys and I cannot wait to tell you all about it and fill you in and explain what it means for me and the show going forward. It's really, really exciting. And you should also know that we haven't done a Q&A in a long time so I'm sure there's other questions that you might have since. Maybe it's about Versailles, maybe it's about podcasting in general or maybe you just want to say hello. Either way, send your questions to me Via the email, is probably the easiest way to do it, wdfpodcast at hotmail.com, through the Facebook, through Twitter, anything else like that. There's no hard and fast rules about it. Just send me your cues and I'll deliver the A's in the actual episode. Other than that, guys, we will be having a break in the middle of this, largely for the sake of your own sanity. If your podcatcher isn't very good at keeping track of where you left off, it might be handy for you. Otherwise, thanks so much for listening. And if you do manage to listen to this episode all the way through, pat yourself on the back because you, my friend, are a true history friend. Listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 63. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 63 of the Versailles Anniversary Project. So, last time our focus was concentrated on the specific case of Bavaria and its Soviet adventures over April 1919, which culminated in the first week of May in violence on the streets of Munich and the eviction of or execution of those responsible for establishing the Bolshevik regime. These events were certainly in the back of the minds of those German delegates who had arrived in Paris in late April to receive news of the terms of the peace treaty, which, it transpired, actually was not ready yet, so no news for a while. As the Germans waited in their hotel, they did not sit still, but neither did the other Allied powers who had invited them to Paris in the first place. The first week of May, despite the axe which hung over the Allies, this axe being the unprepared final treaty, it contained no end of activities, some of them completely unrelated to the resolution of the final peace treaty. A fact which really sticks out from this first week of May is something which is generally forgotten in the grand scheme of the Paris Peace Conference. The Italians, it is assumed, were essentially pushed to the side following Vittorio Orlando's exit on the 24th of April and the Allies, thereafter, got down to some more important business. Actually, though, as we'll learn, the Allies proved wholly unable to forget about Italy, largely because the Italians remained such a fixture of their concerns relating to both the treaty and the political situation in Europe. What would a desperate Italian government do next? Would it launch some pre-emptive strike? How could the treaty be resolved without Italy? What was the best way to remove... The Italian name from the proceedings, but to do so in such a way that it could be added back later, if needs be. Answering these questions not only occupied the big three to a much greater extent than the conventional narrative of Versailles might lead us to believe, it also distracted them from making peace with the Germans earlier. The longer they spent discussing the Italians, the less time they would have to finalise the German peace. Thus, hence the name of this whopper instalment, the Italians were gone but impossible ...to forget, and their long shadow stalked virtually all Allied deliberations during the period. I really have to emphasise that while the very size of this episode might frighten you, the story told here is utterly fascinating. It's especially fascinating because this period is generally glossed over or ignored, and the narrative is fast-forwarded to the point when the Germans are handed the treaty in a scene of great weight and tension. That scene is still to come, but the story of how the Allies got there also deserves our analysis and your care and attention. Delving deep into these six days in May would be impossible without access to the minutes of the Council of Four, and this episode is a great advertisement for how important it really is to consult primary source material which is at our disposal. These minutes are, I should reiterate, completely free. They're available in the Foreign Relations of the United States Papers which are all available online. I'm accessing them online, I didn't go to a library to get any of these or anything like that. So, do track this stuff down if you think you might be interested. If you're fortunate enough to speak French or Italian though, track down those minutes instead, because I've been told they're much more colourful and far less polite. Without any further ado then, let's begin this chunky episode with the first day of May. This was a month which had the potential to represent a clean slate Or more of the same. So let's how. So let's see how it all began. When the big three gathered at President Wilson's French house on Thursday the 1st of May at 11am, it was well known that the agenda would be long and varied. The Germans had arrived, the Italians were absent, the Japanese were causing trouble. All of these issues would have to be addressed and the meeting began with some varied discussions. The Chinese delegation would be contacted regarding the temporary settlement made with the Japanese the previous day over Shantung and Keachau Bay. Belgian access to reparations was mulled over once again, and the precise wording of Article 2, dealing with the punishment of German evildoers, was set out to read. The German government engages that the persons accused of having committed acts in violation of the laws and customs of war shall be brought before military tribunals, by the Allied and Associated Powers, and if guilty, sentenced to the punishment laid down by military law. Conveniently, the onus would be left with Weimar to actually punish those accused of committing war crimes, or of setting off the war through their behaviour in the first place. By putting the ball in Germany's court, the Allies probably had mixed feelings. It was now no longer their responsibility to bring Germans to justice, but it likely meant that the Germans would do nothing with this clause. How can a new German government, which disavowed its total responsibility for starting the war, then attempt to charge any of its citizens with guilt either for causing or worsening the war's conditions? The technicalities were not allowed to trouble the Allies present, and they moved on to the topic of Italy's ghost, which continued to haunt their procedures. In this instance, it was the issue of credentials. The French official, Jules Cambon, was due to meet the Germans later in the day, and both sides would exchange diplomatic credentials. What would happen then, when Cambon could not produce the Italian credentials? Wouldn't this seem awfully suspicious, and akin to violating the understanding that the Germans had, that understanding being that they were making peace with all of the Allies? French Foreign Minister Stephen Pichon said that there would certainly be an incident when the Germans asked for the Italian credentials, and Jules Cambon was unable to produce them. It should be made clear, in his opinion, to the world and to the Italians that Italy was responsible for this state of affairs. Recalling the Pact of London to which Italy adhered, whereby France, Great Britain, Italy and Russia had agreed not to make a separate peace, Pichon said that it must now clearly be shown that it was Italy that had separated from the Allies. This was hardly fair, of course, since Russia had long since failed to adhere to that treaty's terms as well. Pichon proposed that the Italians should be notified of the meeting with the Germans, and that they shouldn't just hear about it through the press. The message which would be sent to the Italians shouldn't contain any invitation to the Italians to return. The responsibility for returning should be left to the Italians themselves. The message to be sent to Rome, Pichon said, should merely show that the absence of the Italian credentials was their fault and not ours. Pichon added that the message sent to Rome should be consisting merely of a simple relation of the incident. For example, that credentials had been exchanged with the German delegates, that Germany had asked for the Italian credentials, and that Monsieur Jules Cambon had replied, we had not got them. If the Germans didn't ask for the Italian credentials, then no incident would arise. Lloyd George said that he doubted if the Germans would ask for Italian credentials, and this would obviate the entire need for the scene to occur. To this, Clemenceau interjected with the view that if he had been on the German delegation, he would certainly ask for the Italian credentials. Jules Cambon would certainly make no answer today about these credentials, beyond merely stating that he had not got them. The Germans might raise this issue when they met the representatives of the Allied and Associated Powers, so Jules Cambon could simply say that he had no power to discuss the matter. Lloyd George asked what approach should be taken if the Germans, put off by the Italian absence from the discussions, Decided to press the question when they met our plenipotentiaries. Clemenceau suggested that we should simply state that we were ready to make peace and leave on Italy the responsibility for breaking the treaty. Clemenceau added that the Italians had promised to him, in front of his colleagues, to telegraph from Rome if they were coming back. To date, they had not done so. President Wilson said he thought it inadvisable to send any message, even of the most formal character. By implication, Wilson said, it would constitute an invitation to the Italians to return. My interpretation of the news from Rome was that in reality they were anxious to come back, and I think, if they were left alone, they might come back in ten days' time. Wilson also noted that it was odd how the Italians were refusing to come back to Paris unless a treaty was made simultaneously with Austria. The Austrians had nothing to do with the final peace treaty with Germany. Pichon then interjected and asked for a reconsideration of the decision taken on the previous day to invite the representatives of Austria and Hungary to Paris on the 12th of May. Pichon observed, in line with this idea, that At Vienna and in Hungary there were governments with which the Allied and Associated Powers could negotiate, In regard to Hungary, however, the news was to the effect that the government was tottering and that the country was not behind it. This made it desirable to wait some days before sending an invitation. This would also have the advantage of giving a few more days to see what happened on the side of Italy, and it must be remembered that the great question in the Austrian settlement was the frontier of Italy. Hence it would be better not to act too soon. If something was to be done immediately, it would be a good plan to bring the Hungarians to Paris by the middle of May. The treaty could be ready for them, but it was not desirable to have the Austrians and Hungarians before we were ready. In response to this shaky appeal, Wilson said that the principal reason for inviting the Austrians was not to disrupt the conference, but instead to steady the government at Vienna by showing Austrian public opinion that we were ready to deal with it. According to his information, no delay in this matter was possible although Wilson recognised the case of Hungary was different, before adding that. Even there we might help to prevent constant changes of government. Wilson added that he hoped the invitation would not be delayed and that it could be sent within six hours. Clemenceau agreed with this rationale, and to soothe his foreign minister's concerns, he said that he would discuss the details with Pichon later on. The big three then embarked on a discussion of the Jews, as Clemenceau said Paderewski had informed him how the Jews had been making trouble in Poland. Lloyd George and Wilson gave their two cents, that the Jews only caused trouble in places where they were already subject to prosecution and discrimination. Lloyd George said that in Poland he understood the Jews were really more efficient men of business than the Poles, and Clemenceau added to this by saying that in Poland, a Pole who wanted to carry out a transaction, for example to buy a horse, would send for a Jew. Notwithstanding the truth of this picture, the Big Three agreed to enshrine terms of toleration into any new states that might be created, and another committee, surprise surprise, was imagined to tackle this challenge. Next, Lloyd George turned his attention to the mandates issue and asked if the terms of the mandates might be inserted into the final treaty with Germany. To which Wilson replied that this was unnecessary and that much time had already been spent on that debate. Clemenceau agreed with the President, but Lloyd George replied that At any rate, there ought to be a clear understanding on the matter. The British Dominions laid great stress on this. Aha, so the Dominions were putting the Prime Minister under pressure on the issue once again. Wilson said that there was a tacit agreement as to the assignment of the mandates, so this wasn't necessary but Lloyd George clarified that it was rather the conditions of the mandates he was referring to than the issue of who owned what mandate. Wilson simply said that the Supreme Council was too much pressed to take up the matter at the present time, so Lloyd George agreed to kick the can down the road a little bit longer. Regarding the timeline of the current treaty, Clemenceau said he did not think the Treaty of Peace would be ready before Monday, since it was now Thursday, and much still had to be arranged. He suggested that the plenary conference, at which he would read the summary of the treaty to the states with special interests, should be held on Sunday, since this would at least give a general picture of the treaty's terms. Wilson and Lloyd George both signalled their opposition to a Sunday meeting, so Clemenceau said it would have to be held on Saturday the 3rd of May instead. In the event, there would be two plenary conferences, the first being held on the 6th of May, the second being held on the 7th of May. On the first occasion, a summary of the treaty will be read out, and on the second occasion, as we will see, the Germans will be handed the actual treaty in its completed form before the assembled delegates of the conference. Like so many other plans and predictions, the predictions which the Big Three were making regarding what form these plenary conferences would take on the 1st of May failed to pan out. After some more tiresome talk about the German blockade, the meeting then adjourned until the evening. When the Allies reassembled at 5.45pm on the 1st of May, the Japanese were present, likely to gain some more clarity on what the official policy of the Allies vis-à-vis their Asian conquests would be. Before that could happen, though, Jules Cambon reported to the Big Four on the scene he had taken part in recently, where the Germans had been handed the credentials of the Allies. After accepting Ulrich von Brockdorf Rantzau as the head of the German delegation, Cambon noted what happened next. I addressed a few words to the German delegates and asked for their credentials, which had been handed over. They then asked that for the Allied and Associated credentials, and I handed them over. I told them that if they had any observations to make on their credentials of the Allied and Associated Powers, we would meet again. After that, we separated. I received the impression that Herr brockdorf Rantzau and his colleagues were profoundly moved, and that their attitude towards the Allied and Associated Powers was what it should be. Herr brockdorf who knows and speaks French fluently, as well as his officials, had said what they had to say in German, and had brought an interpreter. Cambon then explained that he felt it was his duty to tell the Allied delegates present that it would be their responsibility to decide whether the Germans should be permitted to speak German or should have to speak French or English. Clemenceau then intervened, remarking that You could not forbid them from speaking in their own language. In the negotiations of 1871, Bismarck had spoken French when he was pleased and German when he was not. British Foreign Secretary Sir Arthur Balfour pointed out the inconvenience of having the interpreter breaking down the speech into two languages, but Wilson noted that the exchange of views would be in writing and that there would be very little speech-making to have to translate. Lloyd George then cut to the chase and asked Cambon if he took anything away from the meeting as to the German views of the publicity on the German peace treaty. Cambon said that the question had not been raised. The Germans apparently did not mind that the final treaty would be publicised at the same time that they received it. In the end, though, this did not quite pan out. What the Allies did publicise was a summary of the treaty, but not its entire terms. Cambon said that he had not fixed the date of the next meeting, but that Knowing the Germans, as I do, I am sure that it would take them some time to examine all the credentials of the Allied and associated powers. The same applied to his own commission, Cambon said, which he proposed should meet the following afternoon. Cambon asked for forty eight hours for examination of the German credentials and would not be prepared to make any report before Saturday. Wilson added his view, making the point that it had just been learned that the drafting committee would probably require until Monday, the 5th of May, as the date for handing the treaty to the Germans. Wilson suggested, therefore, that Jules Cambon's committee should make a careful scrutiny of the German credentials in the meantime. This was agreed, and Cambon left the room. This was a significant development, hidden among the mounds of paperwork which the minutes created. But what did it all mean? Well, first and foremost, it showed how down to the wire these negotiations were going to be. Contrary to their expectations here, it would not be until the early hours of Wednesday the 7th of May that the Allied printers would get to work stapling the pieces of the treaty together with the incredible consequence that not a single person present in the meeting would have a chance to read the final, completed version of the treaty before it was handed over to the Germans in the afternoon of the 7th of May. Attention turned next to Italy, where it was decided that the Italians should be informed, through the Italian ambassador still present in Paris, that the Allies intended to meet with the Germans on Tuesday the 6th rather than Monday the 5th of May. The Allies had apparently changed their mind, or perhaps Wilson had forgotten what he had just said about meeting on Monday the 5th rather than Tuesday the 6th. The minutes don't make clear the reason for the change, it kind of seemed like everyone was a bit all over the place at this stage, but either way, this day's delay would give everyone more time. But how should these developments be communicated to the Italians? It was decided that Pichon should inform the Italian ambassador in Paris that the drafting committee did not expect to have the treaty ready for the Germans until Tuesday the 6th of May, and that the Allied and Associated Powers expected to meet the Germans on Tuesday as well. This should merely be a message from Pichon to the Italian ambassador, and not a formal message from the conference to the Italian government. This was a handy loophole that the Allies could use, which would demonstrate that the Allied conference was not quite on speaking terms with the Italian government just yet, but that they would still do the Italians the courtesy, of letting them know what was what. Pichon added that he had information about the difficulties which Vittorio Orlando's government was facing, and that it had faced challenges from the right and the left of the political spectrum. To conclude the meeting, the Allies formulated a note which addressed the Austrian and Hungarian governments, which read as follows. The Supreme Council of the Allied and Associated Powers has decided to invite the Austrian and Hungarian delegates furnished with full powers, to come to Saint-Germain on the 12th of May in the morning and the 15th of May in the evening, respectively, in order to examine the conditions of the Austrian and Hungarian peace. The Austrian and Hungarian governments are therefore invited to communicate forthwith the number and quality of the delegates they propose to send to Saint-Germain, as well as the number and quality of the persons who will accompany them. The mission will have to remain strictly confined to its role and should include only persons qualified for their special tasks. The Allies were thus setting the groundwork for peace treaties with the other members of the Central Powers. But this was a process which would only be complete in September 1919 for Austria and June 1920 for Hungary. Both such treaties, the treaties of Saint-Germain and Trianon respectively, represented the death knells of their respective governments, and bones of serious contention and resentment to a much greater extent for the Austrians and the Hungarians the much more infamous Treaty of Versailles. The real surprise with ending on this note wasn't just the fact that the Allies demonstrated their desire to deal with additional peace treaties before even finishing the first one, but that Japan, which had attended the meeting here, did not have its concerns addressed. This was strange indeed, especially considering how vaguely the matter of Japanese control over Shantung had been left on the 30th of April with Wilson and Viscount Chinda essentially agreeing to disagree in the course of that meeting. Perhaps there were explanations for such things which the minutes did not record, or perhaps the Allied powers felt content to ignore the Japanese, so long as they didn't speak up too loudly and the German peace loomed so large. Whatever the explanation though, the Allies adjourned until the next day. When the Big Three reassembled at 11am on Friday the 2nd of May in the President's French home, the agenda once again brimmed with topics in need of attention. Notwithstanding the other matters in need of attention, though, the Allies quickly descended into a detailed discussion of the question which was becoming more and more problematic by the day, that question being what to do about Italy. The meeting opened with the question in the air over whether to publish the letter which Clemenceau and Lloyd George had handed to Orlando on the 24th of April, wherein they essentially excused themselves from the Treaty of London, owing to the changed situation. There was some worry that to publish this letter would enrage public opinion in Italy, but Wilson urged that it should be published nonetheless. Sir Maurice Hankey then interjected, with a more practical concern. What should be done with the treaty, and what should the drafting committee charged with piecing it together be told, if Italy neglected to return? Should Italy be erased from the treaty entirely? Hankey explained that, I had not been authorised to make any formal communication to the drafting committee on the subject. Under Mr Lloyd George's instructions, however, I had asked Mr Hurst, the British member of the drafting committee, to try and arrange throughout the treaty to avoid mentioning either the word Italy or the words the five allied and associated powers. At an interview I had with the drafting committee yesterday, however, I gathered that they had not been able to do this. It was noted by Louis Lucien Clotz, the French finance minister, that the Italians had communicated their displeasure over the current reparations terms through Silvio Crespi, Italy's designated expert on reparations. Lloyd George asked aloud whether the Italians had been given the latest news on reparations, which would have effectively granted more reparations to the power that fought the hardest on a particular front. Some words were exchanged over how the Italians even knew about reparations, and Hanke explained he had been in touch with the Italian expert, as per previous instructions from Lloyd George. Lloyd George then offered a general caution, perhaps because he could feel resentment growing against the Italians, saying, It is necessary to be very careful over this matter. If a break, and by break I do not mean hostilities, occurred with Italy, it would be a very serious matter. In these moments, small matters and the methods in which things were done were apt to tell. We must avoid even the appearance of incivility. I would give an air of over-courtesy. I think that Mr. Klotz was entitled to write and say that other amendments were being made to the reparation clauses which affected Italy, and that he thought he ought to afford an opportunity to Mr. Silvio Crespi to be present. Wilson was open to the idea of essentially being courteous to the Italians, but he added a counterpoint of his own, saying, We ought not to be too soft-hearted about the Italians who had withdrawn from the negotiations with Germany because they could not get what they wanted about the negotiations with Austria, which were a separate matter. Lloyd George in response indicated that he was beginning to have cold feet over the idea of publishing the letter which had been handed by himself and Clemenceau to Orlando on the twenty fourth of April. When Wilson intervened, it became clear quite quickly what the real problem for each side was. Lloyd George was concerned that to publish the letter might drive the Italians permanently away from the conference. Wilson, on the other hand, was concerned because he had already published a memo the day after Orlando had gone, which addressed the Italian situation. Since then, the British and French had not issued statements of their own on the Italian question, which gave the impression to the world that the United States was standing alone on the matter. Wilson noted that he was very sensitive to the false impression which, failing to publish the letter might give out, and provided a very significant diatribe on how he imagined the Italians would react if the letter was published, saying, Public opinion in the United States was intensely interested. It could not understand why the United States was apparently left in isolation. United States public opinion was much more important than Italian. If the United States again became isolated... It would break up the whole scheme on which the peace conference was working. I had less contact than Mr. Lloyd George and Monsieur Clemenceau with Italian opinion, but my experts, with whom I had discussed the matter, assured me that the only way was to show Italy that she was in an impossible position. Once Italy realised that, a result was much more likely. If Italy was kept in a state of hope as regards Fiume, she would go on scheming though, and putting her views in the press, and would get no further. Monsieur Clemenceau and Mr. Lloyd George's memorandum was unanswerable. It would show clearly to Italian public opinion that Italy was in an impossible situation and must get out of it if she wanted to be in the Great World Movement. In the meanwhile, if nothing were done, work would have to be continued on the same difficult basis, that is to say, one of constant embarrassment in taking decisions adverse to Italy in the absence of its representatives and not knowing whether Italy was in or out of the peace conference. This was a fair enough point and it would at least present something of an ultimatum to the Italians who would have to compromise and return rather than stay out of the conference and sulk. It was especially interesting though to note how sensitive Wilson was by this point to the power of public opinion which he felt had come to see his position in a negative light. The publication of this letter by Clemenceau and Lloyd George would soothe these impressions, Wilson thought but Lloyd George wasn't about to give up without a fight. He had something to lose in the matter as well. Not British public opinion, but potentially favourable treatment in Italy if the impression was maintained that only the Americans were against Rome. In addition, Lloyd George may well have genuinely feared the breakup of the conference if the Italians remained aloof, and on the other hand, he may have viewed this disagreement with Wilson as an opportunity to give way on his side, in return for some American concession. Whatever his reasons, which were generally difficult to figure out when it came to politics, Lloyd George replied, I think President Wilson is wrong in assuming that the United States was regarded as standing alone. My opinion was that Italian public opinion regarded Great Britain as more hostile than she really was. They really thought that the British representatives had acted against them. This was undoubtedly a good deal due to the attitude of the Times, which was still regarded as an official or semi-official organ in Italy. Only the previous evening, a British soldier had told me that British officers were insulted in the streets in Italian cities, and the feeling was running strong against us. It was assumed that Great Britain had stood with the United States of America. I think that the contrary opinion had been disseminated in the United States mainly by Mr. Hearst's papers, which were always trying to make trouble between Great Britain and the United States. It was assumed that Great Britain was pro-Yugoslav, but as a matter of fact, British opinion knew and cared very little about the Yugoslavs. If I thought that public opinion would bring matters to a head and force Italy to take a decision, I would agree to it. But I fear it might only prolong the crisis by making it difficult for Italy to come in. Sooner or later, Italy must come in and must do so voluntarily. Wilson responded with something of a compromise, and a familiar one at that. The United States would propose advocating the publication of the letter for the moment, but he added in a further message of urgency to drive his point home, saying, "...I believe that the only way to get the Italians back would be to make a declaration. We had now sent to the Austrians, and we should show them that if they did not come back they would be out of it altogether." I understand that they had sent a ship to Fiume and that they were increasing the number of troops in Fiume. I learned that very morning from Mr. Lloyd George that Italy had sent a battleship, two cruisers and a destroyer to Smyrna. This confirmed what Signor Orlando had told the United States ambassador in Rome, that they would not go into the League of Nations unless they got what they wanted. At Brest, there was one of the latest United States battleships waiting to take me home, but this could be sent to Smyrna or Fiume. The subject of the conversation had thus been changed from publishing some letter from a fortnight ago and embarrassing the British and French to the mess which Italy was making through its interventions in its sphere of interest. Clemenceau and Lloyd George both advised Wilson to send the ship to Fiume. Wilson responded by saying that, Of course, the danger was that if a force was sent, some incident might happen. The Italians seemed to be sending forces to several places. As Lloyd George committed a battleship Britain had in the Black Sea to the region and indicated that Greek Premier Venizelos would be willing to help out, Clemenceau asked the reasonable question of what they were to do about the Italians in Versailles. Lloyd George insisted that the Germans knew about the Italian position by now. It was no secret, surely, that Vittorio Orlando had sailed out of the conference. But Wilson claimed that Italy didn't matter all that much to the Germans as long as the other members of the Big Three were of more concern to their policy. Clemenceau agreed with this, but he made a critical point that Italian policy is clearly to lead the Allied and Associated Powers to the point where they could not make peace in common because Great Britain and France were bound by the Treaty of London, which President Wilson could not recognise. We ought to let them know beforehand that by not coming to Versailles, they had broken the Pact of London, to which they had adhered, and by which it was agreed to make peace separately. We should show that if they broke the Pact of London, we were not bound. This would have represented a strong statement of intent from the Big Three, arguably better than the idea of publishing the letter from the 24th of April, which Clemenceau and Lloyd George had handed to Orlando. However, this would not do for Wilson, because the Declaration would have been collective, rather than from the British and French. The Italians could say that the British and French had been cajoled by the Americans to make the decision, whereas if just Britain and France made such a proclamation, then the message would have been clearly sent. In delivering his response then, Wilson fell back on technicalities, and he pointed out that it depended upon how the promise not to make a separate peace was interpreted. The Italians, Wilson noted, had been a party to the armistice. They had been a party to the preliminary peace, a party, as Mr Lloyd George pointed out, to the basis of the peace, and a party to the discussions on the peace. On the very eve of the negotiations with the Germans, they had withdrawn on a matter that had nothing to do with those negotiations. Clemenceau was not too impressed, and he insisted that the Allies should let Italy know that if they withdraw, they are breaking the Pact of London, and we are not bound by the treaty. We must let them know that if Italy breaks it, she must take the consequences." Clemenceau added that the day was coming when Italy's responsibility for breaking the treaty must be made known. Wilson expressed his doubts over whether it was necessary to let it be known before next Tuesday when the Germans came to receive the treaty. Surely it would not do to initiate a public falling out among the Allies just as the Germans were receiving the treaty? Clemenceau disagreed though and thought it should be made known before. Wilson thought it would be sufficient to say that the Allies had signed the Treaty of Peace, whereby Italy, by not signing it, had broken the Pact of London. Lloyd George suggested that the Italians could be informed if the drafting committee were instructed to leave Italy out of the treaty. This would send a clear message to Rome, and it would obviate the need for a loud declaration. Wilson then made the fair point that, If some communication was sent every day to Italy in this way, she would be only encouraged in her attitude. Clemenceau agreed, but indicated that Silvio Crespi could be informed of the latest developments in the Reparation Commission and that the French Finance Minister would communicate these to him shortly. Through Wilson and Lloyd George's tacit acceptance of this, it seemed that a solution to the Italian question would be kicked down the road once more. Hardly surprising when the big three all seemed to have different ideas on how to answer the Italian question, satisfactorily. The Big Three gathered again at 4pm on the 2nd of May, with several items on the agenda once more. The military and naval terms of the peace, Alsace-Lorraine, reparation conditions for Belgium, and Germany's colonies were all touched on. Of these discussions, the Belgian protests at how the Allies planned to parcel up the German colonies deserves consideration according to the protests sent by Paul Mons, the Belgian foreign minister. Belgium had taken an important part in the military operations in Africa, notably in German East Africa, and Belgium had conquered there the territories which she occupies and administers. Lloyd George was seriously unimpressed with this idea, calling the claim impudent and noting that At a time when the British Empire had millions of soldiers fighting for Belgium, a few black troops from Belgium's colonies had been sent into German East Africa. Wilson made the point that the terms for parceling up the German colonies as they stood did not disadvantage Belgium. Wilson suggested that a reply should be sent in the sense that the Belgian interests would be in the hands of the Council of the League of Nations on which Belgium would be represented. Once mandates were being issued, Wilson said, Belgium would get its share. Lloyd George acquiesced to this. Again, though, discussions quickly turned away from other matters and towards the Italian ghost, which continued to haunt the peace conference. This was especially unfortunate, considering how down to the wire the Council of Four discussions were becoming. One decision of great import was made, though. It was decided, in order to save the drafting committee a gross amount of work, that... The preamble to the peace treaty should contain a definition of the principal powers, in which should be included the United States of America, the British Empire, France, Japan and Italy, only if Italy was represented in all other parts of the treaty except the preamble, these powers would not be mentioned by name and only collectively as the principal powers. Almost the only part of the treaty where the name of Italy would appear would be in the preamble and if the Italian delegates should return, the alteration required would be a small one. This was a somewhat genius idea, but the usefulness of it was quickly forgotten when the next question was asked. If Italy didn't sign the Treaty of Versailles, would she be in the League of Nations? And if she wasn't in the League of Nations, what impact would this have on the League? First things first. Wilson advised that they should take the same approach with Italy's name in the preamble of the Treaty of Versailles as they did with the League of Nations too. Simply use that principal powers mechanism. Lloyd George then interjected though, drawing attention to the fact that if Italy did not sign the treaty with Germany, she would not technically be a member of the League of Nations, and would not be represented on the Council of the League. The Council of the League had been designed to give the great powers, five in all, a majority say, while the other four minor powers would generally toe the line. With Italy gone though, as Lloyd George understood it, the result would be that there would be eight instead of nine members, The smaller powers would therefore have as many members as the great powers. Lloyd George pointed out that this would have great inconvenience in some questions, particularly in those of mandates. Wilson responded that the question of the allocation of mandates would not be dealt with by the League, but would be settled by the great powers. They then moved on, and Italy was kicked down the road yet again. Before adjourning, it was noted that Wilson had ordered his battleship to be sent to Smyrna. This would either diffuse or intensify the situation there, where Italy was said to be about to launch some kind of military expedition. The Allies didn't know quite what. Other news was presented regarding the stance of Russia in the discussed treaty. To avoid that difficult issue, the Allies consented to an article which would effectively nullify the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk from March 1918. It was quite a significant article and represented the ultimate defeat of German interests and conquests in early 1918, when that treaty had been signed. Due to its significance, it's worth reading this article in full, but don't worry, it's not all that long. It read, Germany acknowledges and will fully respect the inalienable independence of all the territories which were part of the former Russian Empire. Germany definitively accepts the annulment of the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk and of all treaties or agreements, whatever they might have been, which Germany concluded... Since the revolution, with any government or political groups formed on the territory of the former Russian Empire, the Allied and associated governments formally reserve all rights for Russia to obtain from Germany the restitutions and satisfactions based on the principles of the present treaty. With that cleared up, sort of, the Allies adjourned until the following day, when they convened at 10am on the 3rd of May, Italy was, unsurprisingly, the first item on the agenda. Despite Vittorio Orlando's absence, it seemed as though the Allies could not stop talking about his country. Lord Balfour and Stephen Pichon were called into the meeting. As Lloyd George explained, he had not expected Italy to be discussed yet and would appreciate the expertise of these individuals on the Italian issue. Lord Balfour presented the draft of the memorandum he intended to send to the Italian government. This was the second draft of the memo, as the first one had been judged not cautionary enough in tone. And this second draft read... We are not sure that you fully realize the serious effects of the unity of the Allies and the settlement of Europe which must be produced by your absence from Versailles while peace with Germany is being arranged. It is true that we have no suggestion to make about Fiume and the Adriatic, beyond those with which you are already acquainted. But these problems are not directly connected with the conclusion of peace with Germany, and their solution, if a solution is possible, will certainly not be hindered by the presence of Italian plenipotentiaries at Versailles. On the other hand, if Italy refuses her concurrence and cooperation, she will not only be, in our opinion, violating the Pact of London, she will also be taking a step which will render future unity of action a matter of the extremest difficulty. To us, such a result seems little short of a disaster to civilization. Balfour then added a rejoinder of sorts to this statement, which is located in the appendix for the minutes of the meeting and which Balfour read out near the beginning. Balfour added then, There would be great disaster to the world if Italy did not come back to meet the Germans. The breach between Italy and her allies would become wider. There would be one power outside the grouping of great powers, and it might be impossible for that power to come back. My idea is to give Italy a bridge, or at least the means of coming back. Lloyd George pointed out the difference between the effect the document would produce if it was signed simply by the British government as a friendly warning, or whether it was dispatched as a formal warning from France, Great Britain and the United States of America. Clemenceau then produced a third document which he had prepared, which, at his request, President Wilson read. We do not need to outline this memorandum in full because it's much longer than the previous two declarations and it's far more detailed. It is worth bringing you guys the final section of the memo, though, in paragraph 5, which captured the urgency of the moment for Britain and for France. It read, The governments of Great Britain and France still fervently hope that the Italian government will be fully alive, as they are, to the danger of such a solution for that future of peace and justice, for which Italy, in full solidarity with the Allied and associated countries, has sacrificed so much of her blood. The present circumstances and the fact that the German plenipotentiaries are now in Versailles make it a duty for Great Britain and France to ask Signor Orlando for an answer at the earliest possible moment. They beg him to forward it to them and while heartily appealing to the high sense of the Italian interests and of the general will entertained by the government of Italy, they hereby bear witness to the unfailing affection of Great Britain and France for the Italian nation. The previous four paragraphs of the memo essentially contained similar appeals. Please come back, Italy. This is why you must come back. If you do not come back, there will be consequences, and everyone will know it was your fault, etc., etc. What is most important for us, though, is that this third draft, Clemenceau's version of the appeal to Italy, in other words, this was unacceptable to Wilson because he interpreted it as legitimising the Treaty of London from 1915, which the United States was not, he reminded his peers once again, not party to, as the minutes here recorded. The world knew that the United States could not be a party to an agreement based on the Treaty of London, and I would always have to say so. This document amounted to a promise to stand with Italy, and the isolation of the United States would become more serious than ever. I wish to add that I am saying this in the most friendly spirit. Lloyd George responded, saying that he had presented precisely the same difficulty to his colleagues and had pointed out that we were in danger of a quarrel either with the United States or with Italy. A rupture with the United States, Lloyd George said, would be by far the more serious of the two. Putting the matter at its lowest, Lloyd George said, there is the very serious possibility that Germany would not sign the peace in the event that the United States is absent. Lloyd George then noted that he was more afraid of the return of the Italian delegates than if they stayed away for this reason, as it could lead to a rupture with the United States when Britain was forced to choose between her friends or honouring the treaties she had made. In other words, honouring the Treaty of London. After a brief inquiry about British public opinion, Lloyd George emphasised that he didn't want to give Orlando the opportunity of putting the blame on the Big Three for his absence. Unless France and Great Britain said clearly, We stand by the Treaty of London, Monsieur Orlando could say, You threw me over. This was Lloyd George's understanding of the situation, but how well did it gel with what Woodrow Wilson thought? One of Wilson's major concerns, as we've seen, was that growing perception in public opinion in the United States and elsewhere that the United States was isolated in its stance from the British and French. This was why Wilson wanted the memorandum to Mr. Orlando to be published so as to show clearly that their views were similar to his own, and Wilson had been informed of an unfortunate development in recent times which confirmed these concerns he had. It had been stated in Rome that Wilson's declaration, published just as Vittorio Orlando had left Paris for Rome, had been inspired by Clemenceau. Yet this impression, and thus the picture of Allied solidarity, was shattered once the French embassy, issued an official denial to this in other words making it clear that the memorandum which Wilson had issued to Orlando came from Wilson and Wilson alone one Italian newspaper had said that Monsieur Clemenceau had neither inspired nor knew of this declaration this to Wilson underlined the problem of the allied stance they needed to act in unison and publicly if the message was to be clearly sent to Italy and the world the question was Would the British and French agree to adhering to this policy of unity when, in the previous days, Lloyd George and Clemenceau had shown themselves strangely in opposition to it? The short answer was no. In fact, Lloyd George changed the discussion by refocusing the microscope back on the American behaviour during the conference. Lloyd George said it was necessary to speak very frankly in the intimacy of these conversations. It must not be forgotten that there was growing feeling that Europe was being bullied by the United States of America. In London, Lloyd George claimed, This feeling was very strong and that matter had to be handled with the greatest care. Any such rift would be the saddest possible ending to the present conference. It would put an end to the League of Nations. Lloyd George noted that, as he understood it, the London press had behaved extremely well and had not gone as far as British public opinion in terms of critiquing the American stance. However, despite the self-control of the British press, Lloyd George emphasised that The position was one of real danger and had to be handled with the greatest care, otherwise we might have the worst catastrophe since 1914. This was a considerable rebuke, or was it a warning or merely a distraction piece from the British Prime Minister? Either way, it was something which Wilson felt compelled to respond to. Wilson said that he was "...sure of the fact that the so-called bullying was recognised by the common man as based on principles which inspired the peace." In his view, Wilson said, "...it was indispensable, clearly, to show Italy that in all essentials, Great Britain, France and the United States were united. Otherwise, the Italians would continue to be troublesome." But Lloyd George would not play ball in this respect. In a surprising bit of back and forth, amidst usually cordial relations between the American and British leaders, the minutes have Lloyd George saying here that In fact, we are not completely united. In regards to Fiume, we are united. Monsieur Clemenceau and myself, however, are not in the same position as President Wilson, owing to the fact that we are bound by the Treaty of London. Wilson tried to find some kind of way out in this regard, and he pointed out that Mr. Lloyd George and Monsieur Clemenceau had both signed the memorandum to Monsieur Orlando. This showed that they were united with me in judgment, even though not in position. This may have been an effort to maintain a friendly rapport, notwithstanding their differences, but Lloyd George wouldn't even give Wilson that. The Prime Minister said that it was no use being united in judgment when a decision was wanted. France and Great Britain were bound by the Treaty of London. If Italy insisted, I was bound to stand by the treaty. I could not possibly help that. This was the bottom fact of the whole situation. But Wilson wouldn't give up either. He said that he thought that this was a position which could not be got out of, and that. Moreover, it was an indefensible position, because, as the President understood it, the Treaty of London had been entered into when only a little group of nations were at war. Since then, half the world had joined in. There could be no right in coercing other parties to this treaty which were just as much bound by conscience as Great Britain and France were by the treaty. It was neither good morals nor good statesmanship. Lloyd George, true to his nature, refused to budge on the Treaty of London though. In spite of all that had changed since 1915, the Prime Minister was adamant that the treaty represented Britain's bond, which she could not break. Great Britain... Lloyd George continued, had been brought into the war largely in protest against the breach of a treaty, that treaty being a different Treaty of London from 1839 which established inviolable Belgian neutrality. She could not, Lloyd George therefore concluded, contemplate herself breaking a treaty at the end of the war when the other partner of the treaty had lost half a million lives in giving effect to it. This has been worrying me for several days past. Wilson met the challenge and reiterated again that this made it all the more important to find some way out. The stage ought to be set so as not to encourage the Italians to come back. If the Italians came back, ideally, they would not find the Allies divided, nor would they be entitled themselves to invoke the Treaty of London, which they were in fact violating by demanding Fiume. Fortunately, Balfour intervened now to break the deadlock between the two leaders an act which certainly helped, and was a boon for us as well, because the British Foreign Secretary conveniently summarised the situation when he noted, The policy that we wished to pursue was the same policy as the United States of America wished to pursue, and vice versa. Our difficulty arose from the fact that we are bound by a formal treaty, which, however, it was true, had been concluded in entirely different circumstances from those now applying. The difficulty was how to get a real agreement in conformity with our treaties. The only way seemed to be to get the Italians to admit that they had broken the treaty, which they really had done. Discussions then degenerated once more into what statement should be made to the public about Italy. Woodrow Wilson and George Clemenceau wanted to publish the memo that they had handed to Vittorio Orlando on the 24th of April, whereas Lloyd George was opposed to this still, because he did not feel, he said, that it fully captured the British position as it now stood. For several minutes, in painfully polite language, it was established that the big three were just in disagreement over this issue, as they had been the day before. To recap then, they'd talked around in circles for the last two days about essentially nothing, and had decided nothing of much importance, spending most of their time discussing the Italian situation, which they could not fully agree on and consistently procrastinated in making a decision on. It was an absolute farce, it has to be said, but this is far from obvious when reading the minutes over the 1st to the 3rd of May 1919. It was house, filled in no doubt, by Wilson after the event in the evening of the 3rd of May, who did a typically effective job of summarising the events of the previous days, writing in his diary that, The burning question for the past two days has been that of the Italians. Clemenceau and George, particularly George, say if the Italians come back and demand the Treaty of London, they will have to live up to their obligations. The President told them that we would not sign a treaty which recognised the Treaty of London and that France and England would have to choose between Italy and the United States. The President, Lloyd George and Clemenceau are preparing a communication to send to Orlando. They hope to put it in such form that Orlando will not come back to Paris. The three all hope that he will remain away and not sign the German Treaty because they were afraid he will demand the ratification of the Treaty of London and thereby bring about a difficult situation with the United States. The whole matter seems to me to have been stupidly managed. If worst comes to the worst, I shall try to persuade the President to sign the peace with the Germans and then let France and England settle with Italy the best way they can. We, however, refuse to join in the settlement and refuse to guarantee it in any way stupidly managed indeed hess was also unflinching in his description of the president as inflexible and tireless in his own efforts to bring him to some compromise with italy which wilson refused to accept in the end lloyd george does state throughout the meeting that while he hopes the situation could be resolved he hoped at the same time italy would not return though they had talked the whole meeting the allies had not been able to create a compromise on what to do about italy the next two meetings held a few minutes apart discussed submarine cables and the conditions which new states would have to agree to, but Italy had plainly been the main event and the main distraction of the Big Three's meetings on the 3rd of May. Yet the day was by no means over even now. It had borne witness to a few spats between the three leaders, but the Belgians still wanted to talk about reparations, and the Japanese continued to lurk owing to their decision to have the possession of Shantung officially ratified. The Belgians at least, were dealt with in the afternoon, and by 4.30pm, Lloyd George indicated that he had more news on the Italian situation. Well now, congratulations, you've reached about halfway through this whopper episode. This is just a very short reminder that this podcast is a listener-supported podcast and that I'm able to delve into topics like these for an hour and a half as part of my job. It's a crazy job, It's a very intensive job, it's a very demanding job, but it's a job that I really love. In case I don't say that enough, I really do love that I get to do this as my job, guys. It'll be like having your hobby as your living, and that's all possible, because you guys are just as nerdy about history as I am. And the great thing about all this is, you are making this series possible. Literally, you are. It's because you're interested in it that it is happening. If you weren't interested in it, if you weren't giving me the necessary support, I wouldn't be able to justify putting the time aside alongside my other job to actually do this. So thanks so much for that. And yes, I see you over there. I realise that not everyone wants to give money on Patreon, and far be it from me to say you must go over there right now. But I would just like to mention that this is not charity. I'm not that guy who stops you on the street when you're on your daily commute or what have you and says, hey, have you considered signing up on Patreon for When Diplomacy Fails? It's a wonderful charity because it's not charity. As I said, I'm giving you something back in return. In fact, if you like this podcast and you want more of it, how on earth can you want more of it? We give you so freaking much already. Sorry. But if you do want more, then Patreon is exactly where you should go. Not only can you get an hour of extra content every month, with series and topics that are nothing to do with the Versailles Anniversary Project, so that might be appealing in and of itself. But you can also get this Versailles Project ad-free, and you can access the transcripts too. You can also access ad-free episodes of The Korean War, so if you want to listen to our back catalogue without having me saying hello there at the start of every episode, or having a sponsored song of the week, as was the case with The Korean War, then Patreon is a great place where you can go to get all that stuff, and so much more as well. $2 patrons automatically access the $1 perk, which is Louis XIV's Arms and Armies, that 10-part series that we released back in 2017, I believe, that looked even deeper into the 17th century warfare techniques and methods that Louis XIV of France employed. It took me a little bit out of my comfort zone, but I really, really enjoyed it. In fact, I was only listening to it the other day to refresh my memory on how it all went. It was very nostalgic, I have to say. So if you'd like to access that, that is only $1 a month what can you get for $1? Let me think about that. An awful lot. Well, an awful lot if you go into patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails, that is. Otherwise, $1 will probably get you nothing much at all. Okay, guys, without any further ado, we're going to jump back into this episode now. So hopefully you've had a little bit of a break. If you've fast forwarded through all this, then sorry, but I'm going to just put in a small amount of music just here to separate the two blocks. So I'll see you all on the other side. Gay, singing songs of Piccadilly, friend and Leicester Square Till Paddy got excited, then he shouted to them there It's a long way to Tipperary Welcome back to the other side of this episode, guys. I hope you're enjoying it so far, and I hope you're not too lost or too overwhelmed with all the detail. I realise it is longer than you'd normally like. Some of you love super long episodes, others prefer them to be a certain amount of digestible size, and I understand both camps. At least in this way, there's fewer episodes overall, which is pleasing to my OCD senses, but also means maybe it feels less overwhelming because there's fewer in number. Either way, we're going to crack on with this here. We were last talking about how Lloyd George indicated, on the afternoon of the 3rd of May, that he had more news on the Italian situation, and the reason why he had more news was because he had met with the Marquis Guglielmo Imperiali, the Italian ambassador to London. During their meeting, the Marquis read from a telegram in his hands, but he refused to give Lloyd George a copy of this telegram to take to the council. This meant that as Lloyd George recalled the encounter to the Council of Four, he was forced to rely solely on his memory. But the Prime Minister did his best, and he outlined the conversation he had had with him for the benefit of those present. The extract is typically long, but... As a face-to-face meeting with one of Italy's foremost representatives, it captures more effectively the Italian situation than any summary from a secondary source. And this is, of course, why we spend so much time digging into the minutes in the first place. They give us a personal perspective of the big three, which is invaluable. A reminder has to be given that, as we quote from the minutes, I alter the perspective. So rather than Lloyd George saying this, and it being attributed to him, and it putting it in the third person, we quote here as though from the first person. I have said this before, and I, again, don't believe it fundamentally changes anything, but for the sake of transparency, I think it's right to let you know. Anyway, sorry for the rambling. When recalling the conversation Lloyd George had had with the Italian ambassador to London, the Prime Minister is recorded as saying, No one else had been present at the conversation, which the Marquis Imperiali said was a private one, although he had said that he must communicate his impression of it to Rome. The first part of the telegram, as far as I can remember, was that Monsieur Orlando had said that there was very little object in returning to Paris. There was no basis for an agreement in regard to Fiume. Moreover, Imperiali said, he understood that Great Britain and France were not agreed with the United States. In the second part, Monsieur Orlando had said, You say you stand by the Treaty of London. How much better off are we? President Wilson will not accept it. What guarantees do our allies propose to enforce the treaty? I then replied to the Marquis Imperiali, What guarantees do you want? Do you expect us to declare war on the United States? The Marquis Imperiali had replied, Oh no! I had asked him what he would suggest, and he could not suggest anything. The Marquis Imperiali had then made a suggestion which I characterized as an impudent one, that the Allies were not keeping the Pact of London because they were making a separate peace with Germany without Italy. I had told him that Italy was already on the point of breaking the pact, that we would be within our legal rights, and that we were advised by our legal advisers that this was the case, in considering that Italy would break it by not being present to meet the Germans. If Italy was not present on Tuesday, then the allies would no longer be bound by the pact. The Marquis had replied that this was a very serious situation. My rejoinder was that it was no more serious than I myself had in that very room warned the Marquis Imperiali that it would be. I had warned Monsieur Orlando in exactly the same sense. If the Italian representatives did not come back, there was no official person with whom negotiations could take place. The Marquis Imperiali then said that the Italian representatives ought to know this. He was afraid that if they came back to Paris and found that no agreement could be reached, the situation would be graver than ever. I asked, Why would it be more grave than it is now? I had warned them a week ago. The Italians were in possession of Fiume contrary to the Treaty of London. I had asked, What the position of the Italians would be, and what the general position would be if the peace about to be secured with Austria gave Fiume to the Croats. The Marquis Imperiali had been somewhat perturbed by this, and he said, I suppose you could put the Germans off for a day or two if the Italian delegation were returning. I then told him that the Italian government would be under an entire delusion if they thought that they could get Fiume. The Allied and associated powers were absolutely united on that point. They were united quite apart from the question of principle because the Treaty of London gave Fiume to the Croats. A compromise that had been suggested was that it might be arranged that Fiume should become a free port, instead of being given to the Croats, on the condition that the Italians gave up to the Serb-Croats the Dalmatian coast. The Marquis Imperiali had asked me if I would put this in writing, and I had declined. Ouch! This blistering meeting between Lloyd George and the Italian ambassador was as revealing as it was unfortunate for the future of allied relations with Italy. But the British Prime Minister wasn't the only one to meet with an Italian ambassador that day. Around the same time, Clemenceau had met with Count Bonin, the Italian ambassador to France, and the conversation was similarly difficult for the Italian, with the key difference being that the French Premier was willing to give a piece of his mind to the ambassador, whereas Lloyd George had restrained himself somewhat. For this fact alone, for Clemenceau's typically blistering rebukes, it is worth recounting Clemenceau's details on the meeting with that Italian ambassador to France, as he said, I had had a conversation with the Italian ambassador, Count Bonin, which had been almost identical with Mr Lloyd George's, but I had had one opportunity which Mr Lloyd George did not have. Count Bonin had asked me what my point of view was, I had replied that I would certainly give it, and I had given him a piece of my mind. I told him that Italy had entered the war with a bargain. The bargain had not been kept yet. Italy had postponed for more than a year going to war with Germany. The bargain had been that Italy was to get the Tyrol, Trieste and Pola, and that Fiume would go to the Croats. Now Italy asked me to keep my word about their part of the treaty, and to break it in regard to Fiume. This was a point the Italians did not seem to realise. I had told him that I could see what the game they were playing was, but they could not get a quarrel between the Allies and President Wilson about Fiume. Italy had broken the treaty, and I had the written opinion of a juris consult to that effect, which could be produced if it were wished. Count Bonin had said, Why do you not make a proposal? I had replied, We cannot. We have signed the treaty. Instead of asking to talk, the Italians wanted their Allies to break the treaty. Count Bonin then said, You are not in agreement with President Wilson. I had replied, I can discuss this with President Wilson and Mr Lloyd George, but I will not discuss it with you. Then Count Bonin had dropped this topic. So these two extracts, recalled literally straight after one another in the afternoon meeting of the Council of Four on the 3rd of May, revealed the fact that neither Italian ambassador was able to make any headway in their own private attempts to persuade two-thirds of the big three, and they certainly communicated these failings to Orlando, who would have been eager to hear of any news. Wilson let it be known that he had also been contacted by the Italian ambassador to the United States, who had travelled to Paris with him, and with whom he was personally friendly. Considering how the other two meetings with the other two Italian ambassadors went, though, Wilson said that he had no doubt that the interview would be on exactly the same lines as those of my colleagues, and I do not anticipate that it would add anything of value. Lloyd George added that during their meeting, he had impressed upon the Marquis Imperiali that the Allied and Associated Powers had every intention of concluding a peace with Germany and Austria, and as soon as possible. The Marquis then asked whether they were going to do so without consulting with Italy, and Lloyd George replied that there was no one to consult with in Paris. On the other hand, Lloyd George said, Italy had been told the result of every decision immediately affecting her. The intention of the Big Three was to press on with making these treaties of peace, and they could not delay simply because Italy would not settle on the subject of Fiume. Lloyd George said that he had impressed strongly on Imperiali that peace would be made. Wilson noted that he believed the present line that was being adopted was the best. The President did not believe that any formal proposal, in other words, should be made to Italy. The only question which had to be decided was as to what sort of notice should be given to Italy of the Allied intentions. In light of the fact that the two ambassadors were in contact with Orlando back in Rome though, Wilson suggested that the two conversations that had been described this afternoon might be sufficient Wilson wanted the statement given out to be strong, and for Italy to be clear, but Lloyd George remained the more cautious. An interesting exchange between the Prime Minister and President followed. Lloyd George insisted that during the course of his meeting with the Marquis Imperiali, he had made that ambassador realise that the Allied and Associated Governments would not give way on the subject of Fiume. Wilson replied that there was no need to mention Fiume, If you did, it would be an indication that there were other things on which you were prepared to discuss, the President, opined. Lloyd George responded that the Italians would not trouble themselves much about anything except Fiume. But Wilson replied that he did not believe a settlement could be reached without giving them Fiume. Lloyd George then expressed the opinions of many a weary statesman when he said that from many points of view, I would rather the Italians did not come back Clemenceau reminded the two men of his conversation with his Italian and that Count Bonin had said that the only thing Italy could not accept was for Fiume to be handed to the Croats. Wilson pointed out that if the Italians insisted that Fiume should not be Croat, the British and French governments would not be bound by the rest of the pact. They could not free themselves from that part of the treaty which gave Fiume to the Croats. Lloyd George was less uncompromising, and he noted that he had told the Marquis Imperiali that he would only consent to Fiume not being Croat on the condition that the Italians would give up Dalmatia to the Yugoslavs. But Wilson disagreed with this interpretation of the situation, and he said that if one item of the treaty was departed from, the whole treaty was upset. Lloyd George, in response, pointed out that the Croats did not sign the Treaty of London. To this, Wilson said, Nevertheless, the British and French governments would not be morally bound if that part of the treaty was not carried out. What did this headache on the afternoon of the 3rd of May actually mean? First and foremost, it underlined the fact that the British and French were party to the Treaty of London, whereas the United States was not, and it highlighted once again Wilson's fear of being seen as isolated in the conference, which would surely come to pass if the Italians returned, and demanded that the Anglo-French abide by a treaty that the President did not recognise. The essential point of the validity of the Treaty of London remained unsettled, wrote historian and statesman René-Albrecht Carre in 1938, and this vital ambiguity remained then, as indeed throughout the whole Peace Conference, one of the major stumbling blocks in the way of settlement. Yet this was far from the only ripple which Italy caused. Even within the French government itself, the familiar divide between Clemenceau and President Raymond Poincaré selected its own respective perspectives, with Poincaré coming down heavily in favour of the Italians and lambasting Clemenceau for isolating them. This dispute is outlined by the historian Joel Blatt, writing for the International History Review in 1986, who noted that on the 3rd of May, Poincare pronounced the news that the big three had invited Austria, Italy's primary enemy, to Saint Germain without Italian approval and without consulting the French cabinet, and that Clemenceau intended to do nothing to encourage the return of the Italian leaders to Paris. He referred to this as a stupefying revelation, an absolutely crazy policy. He attempted to bully Stephen Pichon into quitting over the Italian issue, and then threatened his own resignation, warning that Foch and the French ambassador to Italy would probably follow if France alienated Italy further. He also threatened not to sign the peace treaty with Germany unless the Italian delegates returned to Paris. French Foreign Minister Stephen Pichon, bouncing like a shuttlecock among Clemenceau, Poincaré and the French ambassador to Italy, and drifting towards mental collapse, carried verbal thunderbolts and anathemas back and forth among France's leaders. The Italian question played an important part in the confrontation between Poincaré and Clemenceau, that had been building for many months. After some time going back and forth among the big three, Clemenceau essentially settled the issue that afternoon by saying In my opinion, the drafting committee would not be ready with the treaty by Tuesday, the 6th of May. I do not believe it could be ready to hand to the Germans before Thursday. I think, therefore, that the best plan would be to leave the Italians alone for 24 hours during which time they could consider the statements that myself and Lloyd George had made to Monsieur Bonin and the Marquis Imperiali. As a final note on Italy on the 3rd of May, the Minutes have the three Allied leaders agreeing that first, no immediate statement should be sent to Italy, warning them that their failure to sign the German Treaty would constitute a breach of the Pact of London, and second, that Clemenceau... Lloyd George and Balfour should prepare fresh drafts of statements to be considered at the next meeting. The meeting was not quite over yet, though. The question of Germany's colonies and their mandatories was raised, as was Chinese access to reparations and the Syrian situation. But it was plain that Italy had been the main event once more, and that it continued to dominate the proceedings. Contrary to the perhaps naive expectations of the Big Three, Italy's exit from the conference did not facilitate an opportunity to move swiftly on without Orlando's face-to-face opposition. Instead, this opposition was simply transferred to the paper variety, and the spectre of Italian dissatisfaction with the Allied decisions remained a fixture of the discussions up until the point that Orlando determined it was time to return to Paris after all. The 4th of May was a Sunday and thus something of a palate cleanser as no council of four meetings were held. House recorded several meetings through each meal which would prepare him for the next day on the 4th though and Nicholson continued to busy himself on his Czechoslovak committee but by and large Sunday the 4th of May represented the closest thing to a day off that the big three would have for some time. We do know that Clemenceau and Poincaré met together with the French cabinet and that the mood was tense indeed. Clemenceau blamed the Italians and the Italians only for the crisis. Poincaré predicted that a close neighbour would be driven into the German orbit and that another frontier would be threatened while France's other allies were far away. We will set out in a worse situation than that which we had in 1914, Poincaré asserted. Clemenceau responded to this, I do not compare the aid of America and that of Italy. The latter showed in the actual war that it wasn't capable of much. Poincaré replied in his turn to this. But I do not accept the dilemma, either Italy or the Anglo-Saxon states. I favour remaining on good terms with both. The next week would be seriously intense. The Germans would be talked to at some point, and the final peace terms would be handed to them. For this to happen, of course, the big three needed to know if Italy would be involved, because if she was, then Italy's name would have to be reinserted into the preamble of the treaty before the Germans could get their hands on it. If the Italians did return, though, and if she insisted on dropping Fiume in exchange for the Treaty of London being honoured, then Wilson would be in a bind. He had spent the previous months trying to persuade the Anglo-French to denounce the Treaty of London, and he remained in fear of the perception, in American audiences, that he was an isolated figure in Europe. Neither Clemenceau nor Lloyd George felt in a position, legally, to disavow the Treaty of London, though notwithstanding their preference for Washington over Rome. The big three could potentially come apart if Orlando gave up on Fiume and returned to press the Treaty of London with his British and French allies. Plainly, though, Vittorio Orlando was terminally unable to drop Fiume, and that previously insignificant port town of Fiume, which today is Croatia's third-largest city and renamed Rijeka served as the unlikely spark which threatened to sever the Italians and potentially undermine Allied unity at the most sensitive moment. The act of finalising the peace treaty was only days away. The drafting committee, established for this very purpose, was working overtime to staple the whole thing together. That was a measure of how far everyone had come since they'd first arrived on the 12th of January. Since then, of course, so much had changed. Woodrow Wilson had lost some of his optimism and gained many more grey hairs. Clemenceau now carried a bullet with him whenever he went and Lloyd George had discovered just how different each of his allies actually were. They had been through a great deal and they had learned much, but the final stretch was still to come and it promised to be more difficult than any of the other hurdles previously experienced. That sounds like we're about to end the episode, but there's still a good bit more to talk about because at 11am on the morning of the 5th of May in 1919, in Woodrow Wilson's Parisian house, the Big Three gathered once again with familiar ghosts hanging over them, but this time with new segments of news now affecting their agenda. Two bits of news stood out above all. The Germans were getting antsy, and were threatening to return to Berlin if the peace terms were not presented soon. This bulletin was somewhat superseded by the more critical development, Vittorio Orlando had indicated the previous evening, that is on Sunday the 4th, that he and his Italian delegation would be returning to Paris after all. First things first though, the Germans had to be pacified and reassured. To tackle this mission, a Colonel Henri was brought before the Big Three. Colonel Henri was presented as the officer in charge of the arrangements for the security and communications with the Germans at Versailles. It was decided that he should be authorised to inform the Germans of the date on which the treaty would be handed over to them. This raised the question of the date. I was informed, Clemenceau said, that the American representative on the drafting committee thought a meeting was possible on Wednesday afternoon, but the British and French representatives considered Thursday was the earliest possible date. And Clemenceau added that, I had just received news that Monsieur Orlando was coming back, and this would involve altering the first two pages of the treaty? Lloyd George was of the opinion that it would be better not to alter the treaty in print, but to alter it in writing if they came back, which would show the Germans that they had intended to go on without the Italians. Lloyd George was all about maintaining the appearance, or the illusion, that the Allies were in control and had been in control at all times. Wilson was less concerned with that though and focused on the more practical side of things, proposing that the Germans should be informed that the treaty would be handed to them on Wednesday morning. Lloyd George interjected and said he preferred Wednesday afternoon. As president of the council, Clemenceau had the final say, so he gave Colonel Henri instructions to inform the Germans as follows. First, that the delay in printing the peace treaty was due to the time taken in examining the full powers. Second, that the treaty was now being printed. And third, that the waited and much-anticipated meeting with the Germans would be held at 3pm on Wednesday the 7th of May. Colonel Henri then left the room and the minutes recorded that no alteration would be made in the first two pages of the Treaty of Peace, owing to the fact that the Italians had announced their intention of returning. Finally, the Allies had their plan for how to proceed with the Germans at long last. Now they turned their attentions, for the umpteenth time, to the Italian elephant, which would soon be back in the room. Lloyd George noted that a Welsh friend of his had travelled to Rome recently to meet with Orlando in an unofficial capacity. Last night, Lloyd George said, in other words, Sunday night the 4th of May, he had received a telegram from this friend in Rome. The gist of which was that he had seen Signor Orlando, who had said that he was willing to stand by the Pact of London, but it intimated that when Italy had got Dalmatia and the islands, she would go to Croatia and make a bargain for the exchange of fiume. Wilson pointed out that all this fitted in with the naval and military movements that the Italians were making, and he believed that they were attempting to establish an advantageous position for themselves, from which point they could cling to what they wanted and refuse to let go. Lloyd George said that the Italians had already broken the treaty by occupying Fiume. To this, though, Clemenceau pointed out that the Italians had not occupied it alone, and that Allied troops were also in that city. Wilson recalled a technical point which the Italians were relying on for the legitimacy of their actions, a point in the armistice terms that had given the rights to the Allies to advance troops for the maintenance of order. The Italians had used this excuse to push forward troops to Rome, in which they had been joined by their Allies. This prevents us from saying that the Italians are outside their rights, Wilson said. Lloyd George had an idea for combating this view, and said that he would like to tell the Italians that they must withdraw. If they should plead the armistice as an excuse for saying, we must say, then let the Serbians go in, they are allies. Wilson pointed out that the Italians were sending their troops to other places too, and that they were not entitled to do that under the conference. Lloyd George said, We ought to insist on adherence to the armistice. They, the Italians, were playing the Pact of London against Great Britain and France, and it was Great Britain and France that must meet them. Our line should be to say, You must clear out of Fiume and leave it to the Croatians, in accordance with the Pact. Italy could not afford to do that. Wilson informed those present that he had just received a message from his Secretary of State, Robert Lansing, to the same effect as Stephen P. Shahn's and the Marquis Imperiali's messages. In other words, that the Italians would be back on Wednesday morning. The message also stated that they were coming in the hope that they would take part in the meeting with the Germans. This meant that they were in the hope that the Allied and Associated Governments would make this possible for them. After bothering the Allies from afar for so long, sympathy with this request was unlikely, and Lloyd George cleared this question up quickly, declaring simply that this could not be done on Wednesday morning. A great amount of concern was expressed about Italian actions and manoeuvres to occupy land in sensitive regions. In hindsight, these appeared to overestimate the Italian capacity for unilateral action, but there was no way to predict how the situation might pan out at this stage, especially if the government in Italy became more desperate, and especially if they began to use the promises which the British and the French had sent them in order to induce them into the war, such as extensive territorial concessions in Asia Minor, or sensitive Greek islands. To Lloyd George, these shady activities represented the Italian way of doing business, and dated back to before the war when the Italians invaded Libya in 1911, kick-starting the Balkan Wars in the process. The Prime Minister recalled that, The Italian expedition to Tripoli in 1911 had been uncommonly well concealed. I am suspicious of a similar expedition now to Asia Minor. According to my information, the Italians were arming the Bulgarians and stirring them up to attack both the Greeks and Serbians, but especially the latter. They were the only nation not demobilising. Interestingly, the subject of Turkey was brought up an awful lot when imagining where Italy might strike next. Lloyd George outlined a far-reaching plan for divvying up Turkey at the expense of Italy, and his anxiety at needing to work quickly without letting on to the Italians that they were on to them, caused Lloyd George to grant a critical concession with incredible consequences. Listen to just how quickly the Prime Minister made such decisions, which would reverberate well into the 1920s. The Prime Minister said, Any day it might be found that the Italians had captured Anatolia and it would be difficult to get them out of there once they had occupied it. The mandates for Turkey could not be settled now, owing to the decision to send out a commission. I think, therefore, that we should fall back on this original proposal of a redistribution of the forces of occupation. The United States troops ought to go to Constantinople and to provide troops for Armenia. The British would come out of the Caucasus and the French might put a garrison in Syria, while the Greeks shall be allowed to occupy Smyrna, since their compatriots were actually being massacred at the present time and there was no one to help them. The last point proved immensely important. Harold Nicholson learned about it the next day on the 6th of May and accorded it the significance it warranted as an Allied policy decision, writing I hear that Lloyd George and Clemenceau are allowing Venizelos to land a Greek division at Smyrna. This means at last that the Smyrna question is settled. A personal triumph for Venizelos. A personal triumph indeed. For the Greek Premier had been petitioning the Allies for freedom of action in Asia Minor for some time, and the city of Smyrna, with its large ethnic Greek population, was a favourite hot-button issue. As a key player on the Greek committee, Harold Nicholson was well-positioned to appreciate just how significant this Allied decision was, and it is equally significant that it was a decision made in the context of trying to preempt the Italian policy in the region. By so acting here, we have to underline this fact the Allies essentially made war between Turkey and Greece inevitable. But then again, none of the big three at this point understood or could have even imagined what Turkey would look like in the future or if a Turkish state would even take shape in the future. We will deal with the implications for this decision for Turkey and Greece and do our best to tackle the Turkish situation generally in a few episodes' time, so stay tuned for that. Back to the morning of the 5th of May though, and the focus of the Allies changed away from Italy and towards other matters. Well, sort of. Above all, there was the spectre of the final treaty looming before them, and time was felt to be dangerously of the essence. Some concern was mooted about the outstanding elements of the treaty, and of the Italian name being present on it. Our stenographer in the thick of it, Sir Maurice Hankey, was constantly urging a decision in this regard, likely because he sympathised with the drafting committee that would have to keep a constant ear out for any changes in the Allied mood. Lloyd George soothed Hankey's sense of urgency, though, reasoning that In such a titanic document, there would have to be a good many alterations. In many parts of the treaty, I'd had to trust two experts who were not really looking at the treaty as a whole. I anticipate, when I read the treaty as a whole, that I might find a good many unexpected clauses, some inconsistent with others, just as it happened to me sometimes in introducing a complicated bill into Parliament. This statement was revealing, and I haven't seen it quoted in any other secondary source. In fact, when I read it from the minutes, I nearly fell off my chair, because it indicates that Lloyd George is surprisingly blasé about the idea of reading the entire text of the treaty as a whole, which he had helped to create over the last four months In the narrative of the Paris Peace Conference, let's not forget that it's not very well known that the Big Three never got a chance to read the Treaty of Versailles in its entirety before it was handed to the Germans on the afternoon of the 7th of May. However, what I've never seen mentioned in all of my examinations of this period was this nonchalant approach to peacemaking by Lloyd George, who seemed to think that this pivotal treaty upon which the very existence of peace in the 20th century rested was no more important than some random bill introduced to the commons. Such an attitude didn't bode well, especially if his peers in the Big Three felt similarly. Nobody objected to this laid-back approach to peacemaking, though, so we can at least assume that George Clemenceau and Woodrow Wilson viewed their roles in a similar light. The next day, the 6th of May, was crunch time. The morning and evening would be taken up with meetings of the Big Three, and the afternoon would be occupied by a plenary conference, where the final terms of the Treaty of Peace with Germany would be hammered out. This was a busy day indeed, but with the Italians confirmed as returning the next day, one might have assumed that there would be less talk about them, right? Well, actually, wrong. Italy remained a hot topic, but before she was addressed, the Allies focused on other issues. The morning meeting opened with a key point of principle for Georges Clemenceau, and a war aim of his too the guarantee of French security by the British and American leaders. What Clemenceau was looking for was a triple alliance, essentially, but since such agreements would be viewed with suspicion in Congress, Wilson asked for three or four adjustments to the wording of the agreement as it was being discussed, before detailing the final draft of the statement to be used, which read, In addition to the securities afforded in the Treaty of Peace, the President of the United States of America has pledged himself to propose to the Senate of the United States and the Prime Minister of Great Britain has pledged himself to propose to the Parliament of Great Britain an engagement subject to the approval of the Council of the League of Nations to come immediately to the assistance of France in case of unprovoked attack by Germany. With the decision made on this wording and Clemenceau's acceptance of it, it seemed that France would be secured within the wartime alliance in the post-war years, just as Clemenceau had hoped for. It was quite an achievement, but, of course, it would be subject to the approval both of the UK's Parliament and of the United States' Congress. With his guarantee given, the Big Three welcomed in the drafting committee next, who ran through various issues they had with them. This was probably the most in-depth look the Big Three had had at the finalised treaty, and there were many questions to be asked. The Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, the borders of Austria, Canada, and its position in the International Labour Organisation... The reparations to be issued to Poland, the inclusion of pensions within the remit of reparations, Italian access to reparations, all of these issues were addressed. Mercifully for you, dear history friend, you're probably feeling quite long in the tooth at this stage, but our analysis doesn't require an in-depth examination of these minute issues. But we should pity those figures who were forced to pay every single question their utmost attention. Of course, as before, Italy sucked the big three into its all-consuming vortex. This time, Lloyd George wished to inform those present of new information he had received. The day before, it seemed the Italians wished to bargain with the Croats over Fiume. Now, Lloyd George said, following what he had read in a new report, Italy planned to claim the sovereignty of Fiume under the League of Nations, We imagine Wilson would have spat out his water if he had been drinking any at this point. How long would it take for the Italians to realise that they simply could not get Fiume? In fact, this is what the minutes record Wilson as saying, almost to the letter. The President then added after that, The only advantage in letting the Italians have Fiume would be that it would break the Treaty of London, which I am disturbed to find, allotted the Dodecanese to Italy. And thus, the Treaty of London reared its ugly head once more, as did Wilson's determined opposition to its tenants and his determination to make his opposition to it obvious once more. This compelled Lloyd George to ask what Wilson had learned when inquiring about possible American military initiatives into Asia Minor. Wilson said he regretted to have to say that his legal advisers informed him that he had no authority to send troops to Turkey. One result of the United States' policy of isolation, Wilson noted, has been that laws had been placed on the statute book restricting the movements of troops outside the United States. Wilson explained that under existing laws, it would not even be possible for him to agree to send troops into Turkey, nor could he send them unless it were with Turkey. Lloyd George could hardly have been surprised at this news. Congress was notoriously restrictive of a president's freedom of action, and the Prime Minister would have known it was a long shot. Here Lloyd George pointed out that, In the meanwhile, Italy might establish herself in Anatolia. Perhaps tiring of the issue of Turkey at this point, Wilson stated bluntly that, In that case, Italy would be compelled to get out again. The United States was the only country where Italy could get credits for essential purposes. Lloyd George took the time next to remind Wilson that no discussion had taken place in regard to the mandates for Anatolia. Wilson responded vaguely that "...an authoritative Turk had expressed the view that the whole of Turkey ought to be under a single mandate, but this single mandate over all of Turkey would be too large a mandate for America to hold," and Wilson also expressed the point that "...the Turks were hated in the United States, and the only ground on which a mandate would be accepted in Turkey would be to protect subject races against the Turks." And yet it seemed as though Lloyd George couldn't let the issue go, and he seemed quite convinced that an Italian landing was imminent in the region. Some attempt ought to be made to proceed further in regard to Turkey, Lloyd George urged, adding that... Otherwise, the Italians would establish themselves there. Monsieur Clemenceau on the previous day had told them that Italy had sent seven battleships to Smyrna. This meant that they intended to land troops... It was said that Italy was making trouble between the Greeks and Turks, and having done so, they would land troops with the ostensible object of keeping the peace. Wilson repeated his earlier insistence that the Italians would have to be informed that if they did not evacuate, they would get no money, which would effectively freeze the Italian economy, a more effective threat than he may have realised. Lloyd George replied, though, saying that while a lack of money was an issue for Rome, Wilson should not underestimate the Italian ambitions. After all, Wilson had had a good deal of experience of bankrupt countries in Central America and Europe had had a good deal of experience of the same kind in the Balkans and Turkey. The one thing these countries could always do was to make war. Rather than imagining a solution then, Wilson suggested that these powers made war while bankrupt by living on the land in the course of their wars, but he didn't seem to appreciate that Italy's war strategy against Asia Minor might potentially follow that same strategy. Attentions turned next to the Greek landing, which had earlier been proposed. Perhaps this would solve the Italian and Turkish problems all at once. Lloyd George claimed that It ought to be decided that Mr. Venizelos should be allowed to land two or three divisions at Smyrna to protect his fellow countrymen in Turkey. Wilson piped up that this act would have some legitimacy, since the report of the Greek Committee was now unanimously in favour of giving this area to Greece. Clemenceau also added his two cents on the matter, and he was ready, he said, to allow Venizelos to land troops. According to the minutes, Wilson then said, Undoubtedly I am ready and when it was proposed that these Greek divisions be kept offshore in a vessel for a little while longer to see how the situation might transpire Wilson asked why they could not be disembarked at Smyrna once with the explanation given by the president that the men did not keep in good condition on board ship evidently the president hoped for the Greeks to serve as its double-bird killing stone which would shut Lloyd George up about Turkey and send a clear message to the Italians. Instead, though, what took place at Smyrna was definitely a catastrophe, but closer, arguably, to an atrocity. Before they broke up for the plenary conference that afternoon, a note was received from the Italian ambassador to Britain, who we met earlier, the Marquis Imperiali, who requested that the meeting with the Germans the next day be postponed for 24 hours, to Thursday the 8th of May, because this would allow the Italian delegation proper time to get reacquainted with their allies before the Germans were met. Wilson, unsurprisingly, met this request firmly and without much patience, which is understandable considering the hole in his brain which Italy had created by this point, and the black hole of attention which Italy had demanded over the last week, which every important issue on the Allied agenda seemed to get sucked into. It would be impossible, Wilson exclaimed, to change the date of the meeting. The Italians were entirely responsible themselves for the delay in their return and must take the consequences. Italy had left the conference without any justification and no postponement was possible. Clemenceau and Lloyd George in their turn both agreed and the meeting adjourned to be picked up later that evening. First, though, the Allies would turn their attentions to the plenary conference. Fortunately for you, we don't need to provide an in-depth examination of the Plenary Council meeting on the afternoon of the 6th of May, which was tasked with running through an abstract summary of the treaty as it was completed so far, for the benefit of pretty much everyone present at the conference who wasn't a former Central Powers delegate. We don't need to provide an in-depth examination of this Plenary Council meeting, but we should denote its purpose. This was the moment when the big three were supposed to outline what the final treaty with Germany would look like. The so-called abstract of the treaty would be presented to the representatives of all the powers present, and technically, technically at least, they would be entitled to ask questions about it. The abstract being a slimmed down and perhaps less precise version of the treaty, since the full treaty came to over 200 pages and 440 articles, but this slimming down process didn't make the plenary conference any more enjoyable. Due to the language barrier, it was necessary for André Tardieu, the man responsible for reading aloud the contract, to say each sentence first in French and then in English. Predictably enough, the whole experience was painful for those present. Edward House, writing in his diary that evening on the 6th of May, actually made me laugh out loud with his description of the event. And he wrote, The main business of today was the meeting at the Quai d'Orsay and the reading of an abstract of the treaty. As usual with these large meetings, it was stupid beyond endurance, and I left after an hour of it. A few minutes after it started, I sent a note to the President suggesting that the English translation be dispensed with. He got up, took my note to Lloyd George and Balfour, who both agreed, and then Balfour went around the table to all the other English speaking delegates and attained their consent to it. The President then announced the result to Clemenceau, who in turn instructed Tardieu, who was reading the abstract in his monotonous way, to discontinue. House's biting analysis notwithstanding, that it was stupid beyond endurance, really made me laugh. Another thing to note is the fact that Wilson was in a position to get up and essentially walk around, as was Balfour. We imagine that in the room, as he did so, much whispering went on, and little attention was probably paid to the unfortunate Andre Tardieu, who was probably bored by the act of reading it out loud himself. My point is, the Allied leaders were not seated in rapture at the thing they had created here, guys. This was no masterpiece in peacemaking, and in House's mind, even though he cannot have known all the elements of the treaty, and even though what was being read out here was only the abstract, the end product wasn't even worth sticking around for. It is easy for us to criticise House for this, and to criticise the Big Three for not paying attention to the reading out of the abstract, nor taking time for themselves to read the full, finished Treaty of Versailles. But then, by now, I think it would be safe to say that everyone involved was suffering from chronic peace conference fatigue. They just wanted to get the treaty handed to the Germans and be done with it. And this plenary conference was merely a formality which few wished to endure. Someone who understood how easy it was to criticise when you didn't have to do all the negotiating was none other than Mr House, who noted in his diary that same evening on the 6th of May that The President, Lloyd George and Clemenceau have worked assiduously since the President's return and in the last few weeks they have worked intelligently. I wish to do them this justice. The only objection that could be raised, as far as I can see, to their present method is that it smacks too much of secrecy and autocracy. Nevertheless, one can never get things done just right, and if they leaned in the direction I've indicated as desirable, they would probably have been less effective. Harold Nicholson, another prominent diary writer of course, made a note that on the 6th of May during this plenary conference, Foch caused a disturbance over the subject of military clauses which he had never been happy with. And why, Marshal, did you choose to make such a scene in public? Nicholson records Clemenceau as saying to the old Marshal, to which Foch, while twirling his moustache, supposedly replied, It was to please my conscience. But that was not the only nugget which Nicholson provided for the 6th of May. Having been shut in with difficult Italians on regular occasions, Nicholson was less sympathetic than most to the Italian plight. He viewed them, straightforwardly, as troublemakers and manipulators, and he made no effort to hide his glee when they had stormed out a fortnight before. Now that they were back, he made no secret of his glee in watching them squirm. Endless telegrams pour in from the two ambassadors at Rome, suggesting various schemes for a compromise on the Adriatic question, Nicholson wrote before adding with some venom. Their suggestions are not helpful. This is the result of Italian diplomatic methods. Had they adopted Western instead of Mediterranean or even Neapolitan processes, we should have been bound in common fairness to meet them halfway. As it is, their obstructive behaviour throughout the conference, the outrageous conduct of their local officials at Fiume, Sabineccio, Spalato, Albania and Rhodes, to say nothing of Asia Minor, has put everyone against them. They can rely only on sympathy, not on their inherent force, and they have sacrificed that sympathy by incessant ill-temper, untruthfulness and cheating. Indeed, the Italians had lost a great deal of sympathy during the course of their walkout, and they squandered what power or leverage they might have had by returning at the last minute with their tail between their legs. The historian René Albrecht Carre wrote that, The Italians, Orlando and Sunino at least, returned on the 6th of May. They were coming back empty-handed, and if they had ever expected that their return would be bought by concessions, their move had been a distinct failure, which left them, if anything, in a weakened position. Their return gave them an opportunity to appraise the work accomplished in their absence, and in which they could find little cause for cheer. Indeed, the Italians wouldn't be present, either for that scintillating plenary conference or for the final Allied gathering in the evening of the 6th of May, before the treaty was presented to the Germans the next day. In this, though, the Italians didn't miss all that much. Last-minute details were run through with surprising speed, and the only matter which took up considerable time was the question of mandates. Surprise! Surprise! It was raised by Lloyd George. This time the Cameroons and Togoland were discussed, with the British and French interests weighed up and the Australian rights in New Guinea debated alongside New Zealand's rights to Samoa. If Woodrow Wilson was unaware at this stage where Lloyd George's major field of interest resided, then he can't have been paying much attention. Arguably, the list of aims for Lloyd George revolved around the division of the colonial spoils, the negotiation of reparations, and the creation of a League of Nations institution which would guarantee these decisions, but the order of importance of these aims differed with each passing month. Confirming the Allied decision to strip Germany of her colleagues made granting these colonies to new powers suddenly more urgent in the first week of May. But Wilson had always been non-committal and inflexible in tone, insisting that mandates could not be traded between countries, and that a mandate for Britain did not mean a mandate for one of its dominions. Wilson was also mindful of being seen by external opinion as simply dividing up the spoils. He expresses this fear several times in the minutes, but Lloyd George cared far less about the appearances of that. Before adjourning for the day, the Allies took the time to refine the terms of the Treaty of Defence which would be offered to France, and they managed to absorb some misinformation about Hungary as well. When asked about whether Austria or Hungary had responded to earlier offers to come to Paris and make a final peace, Lloyd George claimed that Hungary's government, that being the Bolshevik government under Béla Kuhn, had fallen. This would hardly have been surprising, considering the shaky nature of that government and Jan Smuts' revealing expedition there in the first week of April, which had left with the prediction that Béla was not long for this world. This misconception, though, caused the Allies to cancel the Hungarian invitation to the peace conference in that moment. Where had this misconception about Hungary come from? If we are to believe his diary, it was Harold Nicholson's fault. He had heard news on the 4th of May from a friend in Vienna that army officers had raided the Austrian legation office in Budapest and that Budapest itself was coming apart with revolt. Bela Kuhn, the rumour went, had fled back to Russia. It was rather my fault, Nicholson noted on the misconception, as we had heard that Bela Kuhn had fallen. Nicholson's dismissal of the error was telling indeed, though, as he wrote simply, Anyhow it doesn't matter much. It might not have mattered much to Nicholson, to the British or even to the former ally of Hungary, the Germans, but Hungary was let down in this case, much like other portions of Europe which had been so obviously pushed to the side, as the Allies focused on more pressing or important matters in the first week of May. These pressing matters, we would imagine, centred upon the issue of Germany and the urgent quest to hammer out the terms of the Treaty of Peace with Germany before the Germans lost patience and returned home. The Allies had, after all, invited the Germans here on the expectation that the treaty would be ready in late April. As we have by now surely discerned from this very lengthy examination of the 1st to the 6th of May 1919, though, the Allies focused the vast bulk of their attentions not on finalising the details of the peace treaty with their foe, but on arriving at an answer to the question of where their wartime ally, Italy, fit into the equation. Even though the Italian Premier had left Paris by the 25th of April, the incredible fact, as the minutes of the Council of Four attest, was that the Big Three simply could not stop talking about Italy in the first week of May. It is impossible to measure how much of an impact this supreme distraction had upon the Allied capacity for creating a better treaty of Versailles, but something which is certain is that the big three never imagined an absent ally could take up so much time. Furthermore, George Clemenceau, Woodrow Wilson, and Lloyd George would never have admitted that, in a sense, Vittorio Orlando achieved a kind of victory because even while Italy would not achieve its aims, the long shadow which Italy cast over the deliberations of the Big Three in the first week of May, 1919, ensured that the Allies never felt fully confident or united in their abilities to make peace. The imperfect peace, which followed, cost Vittorio Orlando his premiership, but in the end, Italy would have the last laugh. In late January 1924, under a very different government, and thanks to a surprising compromise between the Italian and Yugoslav governments, Fiume would pass under Italian control. One week later, having watched as the American government made barely a peep over the development, Woodrow Wilson died. Fiume, in the end, was the last policy line of Wilson's to visibly fail before his death, but by that point the heartbroken former president had lost track of such failures. So it was that Italy's Forgotten long shadow delayed and distracted the Allies during such a critical period of the Paris Peace Conference. To the Italians, Fiume was a vital interest to them, which they could not abandon. To the big three, it was the thorn in their side which would not go away, but to us, Fiume in the Italian absence and the humiliating return thereafter represent further layers in the already towering story of the Paris Peace Conference, which by the 7th of May 1919, was about to enter its final phase. The 7th of May would be all about the Germans, not the Italians, and it was a scene that had been building since the moment of the 11th hour of the 11th month when the armistice had first been signed, and where our story first began. Now that we've come this far, it's time to see where our story goes next, so I hope you'll join me in the next episode, if you're not sick enough of me already, as that watershed moment in history takes place, in the Palace of Versailles. Thanks so much for listening, guys. And if you listened all the way to the end, you know how fabulous you truly are. Pat yourselves on the back, and I'll be seeing you all on the 7th of May.